Many thanks to Supergirl, who continues to be a sponsor of the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Supergirl, that's S-O-U-P-E-R-G-I-R-L, is a nationwide soup delivery service. Most importantly, their soups are delicious. They are a locally owned, women-owned company local to the DC area, but they ship nationwide. And as a sponsor, they have offered us a code, RUN20, for 20% off your total order. I know that Supergirl has always been a go-to source of meals for me and my family. We use them as a compliment to dinner and their heartier soups make a perfect lunch, especially in the fall or winter. They're great fueling for running and their soups taste really amazing. They're vegan, kosher, and organic too. So check out Supergirl at supergirl.com and use the code RUN20. Thanks for Supergirl for sponsoring the podcast. We are very excited to announce our newest sponsor of the podcast, White Paws Run Mitts. You may recall Red Mitts because their founder, Susan Clayton, was a guest on our podcast in 2020. Susan's story is very interesting. She decided to start a small business and she started Red Mitts because as a runner and coach herself, she realized that she couldn't find a glove or mitten that allowed her to take her gloves off and put them back on when her hands got intermittently hot and cold, which happens to so many of us as the temperature changes. So particularly this fall and this winter, I know I will be wearing my run mitts to run every time I head out. They are so convenient and they're also really cool because they have a flap. So when you decide that your mittens are getting your hands too warm, you just simply lift the flap up and push them up your arms and then voila, you don't have to run around holding your gloves or mittens as many of us do when we take them off. They're also great for racing. So check out Run Mitts at runmitts.com and use the code RFF10 to get a 10% discount on your order. That's runmitts.com and use the code RFF10. Thank you so much to Run Mitts for sponsoring the podcast. Dr. Grayson Kimball, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, we are um, particularly excited to have you on our podcast because we are, um, as we've been talking about in our last couple episodes, getting ready for this year's fall edition of the Boston Marathon. And a lot of our runners, even those not running Boston, are running um, finally back in-person fall marathons. And uh, we've gotten them physically ready. They've, they've trained for the past four or five, six months. Um, they've put in all the running work, the strength. They've put in the physical work. And we like to tell them now it's all the mental strength that comes into play. And that's really what is going to make or break their race. And, and we emphasize to our runners that what they can focus on now during the taper is the mental preparation. So we're particularly excited to have you on um, because you are, um, you are, you live in Boston. You have run the Boston Marathon five times, I believe. Five times. Five times. Um, you've coached teams to run the Boston Marathon. Correct. Um, and you are a mental performance coach. So, and you've actually uh, written uh, a book as well on on a mental performance in the in endurance sports called Grateful Running: Mental Training for the Long Distance Runner. And we're going to link to that book in our show notes because it is perfectly specific to those runners that we are coaching for endurance events. So, um, so really appreciate you being here and sharing your very um, Boston specific, but also more general advice to um, our listeners on why mental training and why, why the mental aspect of, of preparing for any event is, is so important and so critical um, to performance. So let's just start, you know, um, we mentioned briefly your background, but tell us a little bit about your, your, your background, your professional background, as well as your running experience. 
My professional background, um, I come from um, a the master's doctor degree in sports psychology from Springfield College. Finished that about 20 years ago, 2001, uh, moved out to Boston. And uh, that's actually where I really started getting into distance running. Um, I had a good friend of mine, and this is actually the prelude in the book. Um, a good friend of mine was training for the New York City Marathon uh, for 2001. And he had run Boston, I think it was in 99 or 2000. And again, I'm fresh out of my grad program. You know, he, he's, he's a good friend of mine. And he says to me, can you mentally train me for the Boston Marathon? He's like, I know I can do it, but like I just, and he's like, I really, you know, love this whole thing of sports psychology. And here I am brand new right out of my program. And I mentally train him for the Boston Marathon. And, you know, we do a lot of like imagery and self-talk. And he runs the uh, 2001 New York City Marathon and he ends up running a PR. I think it was like a 328 or, or something. I, the, the exact numbers are, are in the book. But um, so anyways, um, after that, he tells another mutual friend of ours. He says, oh, you know, Grayson really helped me, you know, with, with the Boston Marathon. And it was great. And my friend at the time, uh, he's actually from Boston, but lives out in Chicago. And he says to me, um, you know, that sounded great. I want you. And I thought he was going to say to help me train for the Boston Marathon. And he says, I want you to run the Boston Marathon with me. And I was living right off of Beacon Street, which is like mile, whatever, 22-ish to 24 of the, of the course. And, you know, I just, well, I'd been in Boston, I don't know, three months, four months, you know, and I just kind of like look out the window and it just, hit me and I said, I'm in. And uh, and again, my friend who wanted to run this was not a runner or anything. He's just kind of comes up with these ideas. And then I started, you know, training for the 2002 Boston Marathon. And, um, you know, like every runner running their first, it was like, you know, I can't wait to run another one and blah, 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 you know, during training. Then the day of the race, you know, at about mile 24, five and a half, you know, as I'm kind of coming through Kenmore Square, I'm saying to myself, my mantra became, um, don't cramp never again, you know, just don't cramp up and I'm never doing this again. But meanwhile, I had, I, I was already signed up for the New York City Marathon for November 2002. But yeah, and so that even though I had, you know, my degree in sports psych and working in sports psych, it didn't dawn on me like that, that last half a mile, quarter mile was so painful Obviously, you've been running for 26 miles, but when your mantra is don't cramp never again, you're thinking about trying to avoid versus trying to achieve. And so it really kind of hit me there that you got to turn it around. And so literally for that last stretch, I and mean, we're talking 100 yards like that last stretch. It just became finish strong, finish strong, finish strong. Right. And so even though it wasn't a huge distance, you know, 100 yards. I still wanted to feel like I was finishing strong. And so, you know, having gone through then my first marathon, it was, so that's what it's all about, right? And, um, you know, one thing that I always kind of propose to, to runners is your feet and your legs are important, but it's the mind that's going to carry you from mile one to mile 26. So although we think about the marathon, like you're going to run the 26 miles, I like to frame it as think your way through the 26 miles because you can really have your brain and your mindset totally help you or as you've probably experienced uh, yourselves, 
it can have you know a very strong negative effect on you. So that really kind of kicked off my, my, my running career. And then uh, the you know don't cramp never again turned into six marathons in like a five year span. Um, I ended up running Boston again in oh. Four and 05. Um, I ran New York, obviously, in November of 2002. I ran the Marine Corps, I guess it was October of 2003. Uh, and then I ran Chicago in 2006. And then I guess it was a simple twist of fate, but I ended up meeting my wife uh, during training. She's not a runner, but just during when I was training in Chicago. And, you know, then marriage, two kids, a house, running kind of went on pause, which in hindsight, was probably a good thing, you know, like just to like let everything recover. And then by, you know, 2010, 2011, just got to ease back in with some half marathons. And then 2015 and 16, I did back-to-back Bostons. And then I really kind of focused more in on coaching some of the charity teams here in the Boston area. Um, and that kind of leads us to where we are today. Uh, and of course, my book, Grateful Running, actually came out of training for the Chicago marathon. Like I, on every training run, I'd come, I'd have all these thoughts going through my head, uh, just about sports psych and running. And I said, I got to put this stuff down on paper. Like I've given all these workshops and presentations, but I got to synthesize this. And so I'd come home, jot down some notes. And then late at night, I'd start writing and typing. And that was probably a good four year process of writing that book. I mean, it obviously wasn't a full-time job. And, um, published it in 2010, I believe. Uh, and then uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, I had some, and I, I'd been revising the book since 2015. And then the pandemic hit, kind of had a little extra time on my hands. And um, so the second edition of Grateful Running came out uh, about a year and a half ago. And um, that is where we are. That's, you know, everything you say resonates with us and 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 really reflects what we've experienced ourselves as runners and what we've seen with our runners. And um, especially that, you know, that making your mantra something that's positive, not something that's negative. And, and we've seen that a lot. Um, how do you kind of as a base, how do you how do you train for that? I know most of our runners now are trained and ready, but somebody who may be listening to this at some point who's getting ready to train or in the middle of training for a marathon, how do you train um, your brain while you're training your legs um, to be able to do that on race day and execute on race day? You know, one of the myths, you know, about sports psychology, mental conditioning is that um, you know, A, it's only for, you know, head case athletes, um, you know, well, you just kind of have to do it like once or twice because it's like this magical thing that like if you do it. And the reality is um, mental training should be part of who you are and what you do for like your, your, your entire life. And like when I first started my uh, mental performance coaching, not really knowing what I was doing and I'm kind of fresh out of a grad program. It was like, okay, let me offer like a six-week mental training program. And then it kind of dawned on me, hmm, so that means what, after six weeks, you don't need this anymore? Or like, you know, why six weeks? Why not eight weeks? Why not 12 weeks? And so then it started to become, when I would meet with athletes, I would create programs specific to them. Like, what are you looking to get out of this? And truth be told, sometimes I talk to an athlete, it would be like, you know, a last minute phone call. Hey, can you meet with my daughter? She's a tennis player or something. And I say something It resonates and it helps them that, that, that next day. But even though it helped them that next day, you need to then practice whatever that little skill was every single day. 
And now not, you know, sports psychology, mental conditioning is not meditating for like, you know, an hour and a half every day. It's, you know, you're walking to your car, you know, am I thinking about what my run is going to be today? Like I'm getting ready for, for bed tonight. Am I visualizing, you know, what my run is going to be tomorrow, what the pace that I want to run at, what's, what's the course that I'm going to run. So that is where like mental conditioning just kind of becomes part of who you are and, 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 and what you do. So when I have done work with other marathon teams, I kind of get called in, you know, with like a month to go, like right before the big 20 miler or something. And there's no like bad time to learn mental conditioning. But when I work with a team from day one, like I'm coaching that team, it's I put a huge uh, uh, amount of importance on the mental side of things. So uh, like I'll call them out on day one, like, all right, we're running four miles today. What's your goal? Right. And the goal somebody might say is, well, you know, I, I, I want to have fun on the run today and, and, and I don't want to stop. And so I'll say, ah, ah problem. So first, you know, that first goal is I want to have fun. What does that mean? You want to be smiling the whole time. You want to be laughing. You want to be playing. Like, what does it mean to have fun during a run? I don't know. And you probably don't know. So when the four miles is, is actually over, did you achieve your goal? And they'll basically say, I don't know, because we don't know what it is to have fun. So these subjective goals become problematic. And then when they say like, you know, and I don't want to stop over the four miles. Great. Nobody wants to stop. But I didn't ask you what you didn't want to do. I asked you what you want to do. And so it's, you know, I want to run through the four miles. Uh, and so again, getting them to be more, you know, process or performance based, you set that foundation on day one. And that's what they start thinking about over the course of three, four, five months. So, um, you know, the little things like the, their, their self-talk, the types of goals, what's motivating them, you know, why are you running the, the, the uh, marathon? Well, you know, a friend of mine challenged me and she doesn't think that I can do it. All right, great. But that's an external reason. So if you're only running this thing to prove your friend wrong, like not doing it because it's going to prove to you that you can actually set a goal and achieve it. Well, like here in Boston, you know, actually, even though it's, it's going to be held, you know, next, next week, we typically train when it's really cold, like in the winter, obviously the summer, it was really hot and humid, like some days in like you know, July and August. Well, if you don't have a true reason for wanting to run the race, other than I want to prove my friend wrong, well, on those, you know, 90 degrees, you know, humid days or those 16 degrees, you know, freezing days out there, you're going to say, forget it. I'd rather just stay in bed. Like, why am I doing this? Right. And so that's all about mental conditioning. So, again, like more intrinsically motivated, you know, positive instructional self-talk, visualizing yourself doing something versus not doing something like achieving versus failing. Um, that's how I kind of set the foundation for mental conditioning from day one and then carrying it throughout the entire program. I really like how you talk about goals and distinguish between process goals um, and external versus internal. But I also want to talk to you about process goals versus results goals. Runners are ultimately very results-oriented athletes, of course, and while so many runners are out there for the process and understand the importance of enjoying the process, whether in training and in racing, let's face it, so many runners also have time goals. What do you say to those runners 
who are training for a particular goal and how to manage that with also recognizing that we can't put all of our eggs in that one basket. Yeah, so it's funny, I was just talking about this earlier today. So with a first time marathoner, you know, I never ask them what, you know, what's your predicted goal time? Like, you know, what are you hoping to, 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 run, run, to run it in? Because they don't know what it's like to run a marathon. So usually, you know, your, your, your first time runner, they'll cap at what, 18, 20, maybe a 21 miler. I know some people now do like 23, 24 miles, but you know, if you're dealing with some injuries, whatever, maybe you cap at 16, 18, 20. So even if you did a 20 mile run, right? And you had a great 20 mile run and your whole training has been fantastic. No injuries, nothing. And you run that 20 miles in three hours, right? So you would then say, all right, that's what roughly about a nine minute mile. If I keep that pace and I should finish this thing in just under four hours. Okay. My goal is to finish it in under four hours. And you know something, there's a good chance that you might actually do that, but you don't know what it's like from mile 20 to 26. And when you ran that 20 miler at mile 17, 18, you're already like mentally shutting down, like, okay, two more miles to go. I can push this a little bit, you know, whatever. Well, when you're at 17, 18 miles of the marathon, you still have eight or nine miles to go. And just so it's a different mindset. And what a lot of runners, especially first timers don't understand, especially, you know, with, with Boston, it's kind of, it's a very narrow course and you're a charity runner, you're way in the back. And obviously, you know, there's still like a tiered start, but your tier, you might be running behind 3,500 runners, right? Who are behind another 3,500 runners who are behind another 5,000 runners. So for you to kind of get into that um, pace of let's say a nine minute mile, it might take you four miles, five miles to finally like break off a little bit. So you don't realize how much extra time that's adding. Then you're at mile 13, you look at your watch and you say, I'm not going to make it in four hours. You know, like I'm going to have to run like 830 miles because, you know, your, your pace was just up. Then it puts so much pressure on you and then you don't enjoy the moment. Right. And so for first timers, to me, it really has, has to be about just the process of running it. Like the goal is to finish how I finish in what shape I'm in. It's getting across that finish line. You know, after you've run one or two and you just kind of know what to expect and, hey, I've already run one and, and let's say it was Boston. Okay, now I'm running it again. I know the course. I know what to expect. All right. Then it's not bad to have an outcome-based goal. Okay, I think realistically I can run this in four hours and 30 minutes. Okay, that, that's fine too. But don't be thinking four hours and 30 minutes at the start. You got to think about how am I going to run this in four hours and 30 minutes? What's my strategy? You know, again, when can I kind of turn it up a little bit? When do I need to dial it back a little bit? I've run the course a bunch of times. I know where the hills are. I know where the straightaways are. Um, and, and so it's those little things, you know, in terms of knowing how to run it, where when you become a little more experienced, throwing in the outcome-based goals can help. Um, but what I, the way I, I frame it is that the outcome goal, the three-hour marathon, the four-hour marathon, the time is out of your control. How you run it is totally within your control. So like strategies like how often am I gonna eat? 
What am I going to drink? What am I going to eat? Do I like the goose? Do I want to eat, you know, some pretzels to get some salt? Is it M&Ms? But whatever it is, what's your strategy? And many times runners don't have a true strategy of what they want to do other than finish. And, um, and that, that's where it gets back to think your way through the race. Don't just run your way through the race. That's a great point. And so tell us, you know, as, as runners are starting to get ready for maybe for, we'll talk about Boston in particular in a little bit, but as runners are kind of heading into the race week, are there particular exercises they can do? Are there, you know, routines that they can get into things that they can actually do like we can give them tasks um you know think about visualize this come up with your strategy what what do you tell your runners um to do that week leading up in terms of visualization especially if they haven't been on the course before we've been out of racing for 18 months i mean that's another yeah. kind of part of it is we, we're not really like sharpened in our racing strategies like what what specifically can runners do the week leading up to a race so, um, you know, the, the first is you had mentioned too, this is taper time, right? And so again, for first timers and even for experienced runners, you know, the, the, with the taper, I mean, you're cutting back 50, 60, 80% of what you're normally doing. So it's the fear of I'm going to get out of shape, you know, I'm going to get fat, you know, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't happen over a week, right? Like over two, two weeks and you're still training, you're just cutting back. So that can easily lead into um, like irrational thoughts, right? So the first step is to think about what you're thinking about, like be aware, be mindful of, of what you're thinking. So keeping, you know, again, that, that positive, instructional, achievable mind frame. All right, you know, the marathon is 10 days away or eight days away or seven days away. Here's what I'm going to do, right? And so you're constantly thinking about like race day goals. Um, and, and again, even though, you know, I might be integrating imagery with like my runners from day one, there's never a bad time to get into like a, a structured imagery program. Like every night before you go to bed, spend five minutes thinking about how you're going to run the course. And so one thing that I mentioned in, in the book, in the imagery chapter, is to create what's called a, a imagery script. And this is where a runner will literally write out from mile one to mile 26, like how they see themselves running the race. And, and in the book, I have a marathon script that I had written for one of the teams I was coaching 15 years ago. Uh, and, um, you know, even to this day, even though some of the landmarks on the Boston Marathon have changed, restaurants that were there aren't there anymore, whatever, it's it's just becoming familiar with certain things like certain mile markers, you know, certain, you know, statues and, you know, oh, Heartbreak Hills. Oh, that's the big hill coming, you know, into Newton. And here's a big decline coming out of Wellesley and like all of these areas. So it's like you, you write it out, you read it, maybe have a friend or your husband, wife, whatever, read it to you. So again, you're just laying there with your eyes closed and somebody is basically telling you what your story is because you've written the whole thing out. Um, if you do live in Boston and you haven't been running the course, I would suggest drive the course, like just to become familiar with it. Um, and even if you don't live in Boston, my guess now is that you can probably YouTube somebody who has 
run or driven the Boston Marathon course and has recorded the whole thing so you can see exactly what you're going to see out there. And again, so just kind of becoming familiar with the race environment, um, I think can be really helpful, you know, during that, that prep week. Uh, and then probably also think about what your weekend routine is going to be. Like we all, we often talk about just like race day routine, like I eat oatmeal with peanut butter or something, which is great because you want to stick to what's familiar. But what's the weekend going to be like? You know, do I have friends and family who are coming in? When am I going to go to the expo? Um, do I want to be like, obviously right now, do I want to be around all those people? You know, do I want to go on the earlier side, the later side? Um, and so planning all of that stuff out as opposed to, well, let me just wake up Saturday and see how I feel. And maybe if I want to go down early, no, like have your plan because by Sunday afternoon, you want to be done. You know, it's like I got my shirt and I got my shorts and I got my number already pinned to where I'm going to wear it. Everything is laid out. I'm ready to go. It's four o'clock on, on Sunday. And now let me just kind of go into mental cruise control. And yeah, and also accept the fact that Sunday night, I'm probably not going to sleep much, you know, just because I'm going to be excited and nervous. Uh, but as long as you get a good night's sleep Friday night or Saturday night, like you're going to have the energy. Uh, and so again, it's just being aware of all of these little things. So the littlest of things doesn't freak you out. And that's why having a little routine and your schedule that provides a sense of comfort, helps ground you. And so when you feel like things might be getting a little crazy, no, let me stick to the routine. I'm going to eat dinner at five o'clock. I'm going to watch a movie. Then I'm going to load up my iPod or whatever, and then go to bed. Right. And so you stick to that routine and that helps um, minimize those unnecessary nerves that you may have week of. Love that. It's, it's definitely um, supports what we tell our runners a lot, which is control the controllables and planning of, of course is a controllable. So back to, you had mentioned um, spending time writing your script and visualizing, which is so important. So using your expertise, what kind of advice would you give to runners who are doing their best to visualize, but maybe they have some type of uh, traumatic event in the running realm from executing the course previously. Maybe the last time they raced, something happened that they really want to overcome for this course. Um, or perhaps because like Lisa mentioned, runners haven't run a marathon for at least 18 months um, and may have some negative energy and extra anxiety as a result of that. What advice do you give to those runners as they proceed with that visualization? So it's not uncommon uh, for people to have negative images. So even right now, if I told both of you to not picture running shoes, did either of you picture running shoes? Yeah, but I just told you not to do it. So what happens is the brain doesn't really know the difference between like positive, negative. Now, so when we try to practice imagery with all athletes, like, you don't want to obviously visualize yourself making mistakes, but what you want to visualize yourself doing is maybe reacting to a mistake, like how will I overcome this? Or yeah, you know, the last time I ran, like years ago, um, I went for a run when I was living in, in Boston, running down uh, Beacon Street, and there was a lot of construction, and I had to run in, 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 the, in the road, and I, my foot hit a teeny pebble 
and my ankle went over and within four seconds, my ankle just exploded, you know, and thankfully, you know, the train is right there, hop back on back up, up, up to my park. And I, I don't know, let's say I couldn't run for three weeks, you know, a month or whatever it was that next run out, even though everything is totally healthy, the ankle is fine. You know, you start to run and you just have that, you know, PTSD of the last time I did this, the ankle went and wow, was that painful, you know, but then that's where mental discipline comes in. Well, the more I think about not spraining an ankle, does that make my run enjoyable or not? Right. And this is where being aware, being mindful comes in. That's the whole goal of mental conditioning, develop strong self-awareness and mindfulness. And so instead of thinking about the ankle turning over, let's think about the fact that I haven't run in a month and this is great to be out running, right? So as much as I want to go out and bang out 10 miles right now, I haven't run in a month. Like maybe let's just get through four or five miles without everything hurting, you know, because I haven't run. And so again, it's choosing to think about something that puts you in a good mood versus choosing to think about something that you have a bad experience with. And so, you know, with a lot of mental conditioning, it really comes down to choice. So, you know, when a runner says to me, you know, like you have to make me more confident. No, you have to make yourself more confident. You're choosing not to think confidently. Now I can talk to you and try to figure out why, right. And then maybe give you some strategies, but I can give you the best strategies ever. If you then choose to then still think about rolling an ankle or, you know, not being able to finish or dehydrating and passing out, like that's what you're choosing to think about. That's your choice. Right. And so, you know, that, you know, ties into something that, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with like choking, right? It's like, ah, I choked in the big race today. I trained so well and everything was great. I blew it. Right. No, because we told, we, we always, we tend to associate choking with the outcome, right? I was trained, you know, to run a 3.30 qualifying time and I finished in 3.36 and I didn't make the time. I choked. No. The bigger question is, why didn't you hit the 3.30 time frame? And when you really think about it, it's, well, now that I reflect on it, you know, I probably didn't hydrate as well as I could have given what the weather ended up being. Um, there were definitely moments where I started to doubt myself and those thoughts started going. So the choke is you had a choice to think A or B. You thought A instead of B, right? You had a choice, right, to focus on Y or Z. You focused on Y, put you in a bad mood, right? And that then prevented you from running as well as you could. And so everything really comes down to that choice uh, in terms of how you want to think, feel, and run. And that think, feel, run, that's really like the premise of the book that's right in, in the beginning of it, because how you think affects how you feel, which affects how you perform. And then how you're performing will affect that next thought, that next feeling, and it becomes one big, huge cycle. So what you're saying, what you're seeing, and then what you're doing are all kind of tied together.
And how do you incorporate kind of the uncontrollables into that script? Like you were just talking about, like maybe you didn't hit that goal because the weather was really bad. It was hot. You know, it was like, you know, 2012 in Boston. Yeah. It was that hot year. Or maybe, you know, some something that's kind of out of our control. Um, maybe you weren't feeling so great. Maybe you were a little bit under the weather. So how do you, you know, if you've written this script, you're visualizing it, you've had it read to you, you've read it, and then you get to race day and something doesn't, it wasn't in the script comes up how do runners kind of manage that mentally and on the on the spot basically yeah so two things one i always like when it comes to like goal setting and race prep i'll always tell runners prepare for the problems like we don't want problems to happen and many of us kind of live by what's called the optimism bias like everything will go well today for no other reason than i'm grayson and everything seems to work out for me right now Maybe it does 90% of the time, right? But still 10% of the time, it doesn't. So what if that 10% pops up, right? Like what if something happens and I'm not prepared for it? Well, again, I would think back, what has prevented me in the past from running as well as I could? You know, again, lack of hydration, you know, poor nutrition, you know, during the, it's much warmer than they thought it was going to be, right? So you think about what a potential problem could be and then what your plan is to actually deal with it when the race happens. And then flexibility, mental flexibility. Yeah, my goal is to run this thing in 335, right? But you know something, it may not happen. And, you know, being flexible during the race. So, okay, maybe 335 isn't going to happen. Maybe 345 is more realistic. And then, well, that's not a qualifying time. Well, you know something? Not everybody qualifies. And, you know, sometimes you just have to chalk things up to as much as I trained and as well as I trained, sometimes the day just wasn't my day. And there's always the next one, right? And, um, and, and again, if it's a weather-related condition that's out of your control, like some people just don't run well when it's 80 degrees, where other runners, boom, they just take off and you're like, how can she do it? But I can't. Well, it's like physiologically, we're all different, right? It's like, you know, I, I you know, a friend of mine, like, you know, she, she'll joke that, you know, she'll eat like, you know, a head of lettuce, like before her marathon and boom, like, you know, she went, runs at a qualifying time. So like, I don't know how she does it, you know, but she does, right? Where someone else, you know, doing all the right things and eating the oatmeal and this, 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 and that. And, and they train well, but it ends up being a hot day and they just run out of gas at mile 17, right? It's like, so some things you just have to chalk up to life and, and also put it in perspective. Like as important as the marathon is, and when you're committing to raising money for charity and pushing yourself and, and you know, committing three months, four months, five months of training, it is really, really, really important to you. But think of it literally in the context of the big picture. So I didn't run a qualifying marathon time. Will I still wake up tomorrow? Probably, right? And that might be the fuel, the little spark that says, I'm not done. Like, Next one, you know, we're going to train, you know, and not, and again, it's not, I'm going to train harder. You trained fine. That day just wasn't your day. It doesn't mean you have to like change coaches and do this and do that. And no, that day just wasn't my day. And, um, 
And I think having like that healthy outlook on, you know, what you're really trying to do here in the big scope of life, like you still finished. And it's like, you know, less than 1% of the, you know, population run and finish a marathon. That's pretty impressive. And you know something, if you qualify, that's gravy. But the fact that you actually finished it, that's what you should really be proud of. I really love that. And particularly in light of what's happened over the past year and a half, of course, that has prevented us from getting to start lines. And now we're finally here. I think, especially this year, that's a great approach when you're feeling uh, low, whether in the marathon or after the marathon, for some reason that you didn't quite hit your goal. Certainly, um, as your book states, running gratefully is really important. But um, nonetheless, we recognize that that there are moments within the marathon where one can feel really low and it, it may be brief, but what advice do you have to runners who are hitting that moment where that moment doesn't necessarily have to define their race, but they're in it. So how do you help people from getting stuck and allowing that moment to define their race? Yeah. So a couple of things first, and this is where like prepare for the problems come in, like, okay, maybe a problem could be I get too negative or again, I have like that time where I'm, I'm, I'm feeling down. So it's one thing to say, oh, just say something positive. What? Like, what am I actually going to say? And am I actually going to believe it? Right. Like, am I going to believe this, this, this positive self-talk? Uh, and so, you know, I, as the name of the book, you know, Grateful Running, I mean, I listen to music the entire run and I'm basically listening to the Grateful Dead like the entire run. And they, I mean, I've been going to see the Grateful Dead for 30 years. Like it's been my life, you know, to the point where, you know, my name, my daughter after a Grateful Dead song, like, you know, to the dismay of my wife at first, but then she came on board when she heard what the lyric was and how it all connected. Um, What's your daughter's uh, name? Scarlett. Oh, I love that. After Scarlet Pagonias, there's a line in the song that says, I knew right away she was not like other girls. And my wife, who was the anti-deadhead, said, that's got to be the name. You know, so, uh, you know, she and uh, so I put on the music and even if I'm struggling and believe me, I have struggled like in some runs. But the music just makes me feel good. Right. It puts a smile on my face. And then the other piece to that is, and because when you're running, you know, you could be at mile 10 or mile 18 and you see some people that are hurting out there to the point where like you see them go off the course and like they're taking the bus, like they're done. Right. And I mean, I've had some runs where, you know, I've been injured, you know, leading up to the marathon, just, I don't know how it's going to go. And, you know, I've had to walk like the last seven miles of the marathon, you know, which is awful. Right. But I say to myself in those moments, if I quit right now, will I be happy when I wake up tomorrow morning with no metal? And the answer is no. So it's like whatever I have to do to get from here to there, if that means walk, if that means slow it down, if that means, you know, run for 30 seconds and walk for 10 minutes, whatever I need to do, I will figure out a way to make it happen. And especially when I've been running for one of the charities, right? Like, you know, you're running for, for Dana Farber. And I'm saying to myself, I'm complaining that my calf hurts. Like there are some people right now that would kill to know what it feels like to have your calf hurt. Right. And so again, putting things into perspective, like as hard as it might be in that moment, 
to, to how am I going to continue on? I still got eight miles to go. Well, again, there's someone else who would love to be in this position to know what it even feels like to be in that much physical pain to actually do it. And so again, that could be a thought that comes in for 10 seconds, but that's all you need where you say, okay, it's my calf or it's my hamstring. I'll get through it. Like maybe I can't run it, but I can walk it. And so that's where the flexibility comes in. I was so trained to run a four hour or whatever marathon, but just something happened. But, and I have to say my worst finishing time has been my most, was my most fulfilling marathon because of, because of the adversity, right? Like when things are going well, and I'm sure that both of you can, can attest to this. When you have a great day, it's like you're psyched, you know, maybe you ran a PR, but it, but it's like, it was easy. Like I just ran, like there were no challenges. It was 48 degrees and a little bit of a, you know, tailwind and they couldn't have asked for a better day. Right. But what about the day when it's a headwind and it's raining and it's 39 degrees, right? Well, that's not easy. You know, that was Boston a couple of years ago, you know, like when everybody swam the Boston marathon and, you know, to be able to finish that, like that's a huge confidence builder for your next marathon. Wow. I was able to get through that. I can get through regardless of what the next one is, is going to be. I can get through it. So, you know, it's using these past performance accomplishments, previous experiences, all of these little things, that's all mental conditioning. Again, do you have the awareness to think about those things when you're feeling a little down or do you just kind of do the easy thing, which is give into that negativity and literally run yourself out of the race, you know, as opposed to running yourself through the race. Yeah, we've seen that, um, you know, both in our own experiences and with, with runners we've coached. And I, I always tell runners that we coach these two kind of parallel stories from many years ago without using names. But we had one runner who went out to run a Boston qualifying time and she just bombed the race. And afterwards we said, you know, hey, tell us what happened. And she said, well, I got to mile seven. And I said, this is hard. This sucks. Yeah. Not my, I'm done. And so that's what happened. We said where your mind went, your body followed. Like after my, we said, well, if you were thinking that at mile seven, there was, you know, and couldn't turn that around. Whereas the other runner got to mile 20, realized she wasn't going to hit her Boston qualifying time, got mad, thought, okay, I'm just going to, you know, why even try? And then got mad at herself and said, no, no, I trained you hard for this. I am going to, even if I'm not going to hit my Boston qualifying time, I'm going to push. And she finished strong and set a PR and still felt really proud of her finish. It was just an interesting contrast of the two runners. One just decided at mile seven, I'm done. And that's it. And, uh, and it tanked it. And the other one decided I'm not going to hit my A goal, but I'm going to I'm going to fight for this. And she hit another goal and felt really proud of her performance. So we, we often tell those stories. So kind of just shifting just a little bit. We've talked a little bit about it, but Boston in particular, what you know, your experiences, what what what's been like the most challenging part of that course for you? Most runners will say, you know, heartbreak hills, you know, like once you turn on to combat, you got those three uh, uh, hills. But I think the beginning of the race can be really challenging because you have so much energy and the race starts off downhill that you're just, you know, you're, you're more likely to run too fast out of the gate because you're excited and it's downhill and all that momentum pushes you down. Um, and then uh, I think when you're coming through Wellesley, uh, through Wellesley Center, there's a huge steep decline hill 
Uh, it's called Grossman's Hill because there used to be a, a, a like a hardware store like down at the base of there. And then as soon as you run downhill, and as you know, if you run too fast downhill, you really burn out your quads, like when you know when when you're running fast. So, but again, gravity, excitement, everything is pulling you down. And then as soon as you kind of land into like Newton Lower Falls, you run over 128, the big bridge there. And especially people who have not run the course, they don't realize how steep that little bridge is. They don't think of it as a hill. They just think of it as I'm running over a bridge, but you're still running up, you know, and then you're running back down. And so you're very likely to, burn out right around there. Then you got that straightaway, but then you come up to Calm Ave where you got the series of rolling hills. So it's like that stretch from Wellesley Center into Newton, where you really need to monitor what I call like mentally check in. So that's where, again, like when you're running downhill, just use some positive instructional talk, like take it slow, take it slow, take it slow, take it slow. And the more you tell yourself to take it slow, you will take it slow. Just like, you know, when runners say to me, I can't run any faster than whatever pace. So I say, okay, and I'll be running with them. And I'll say, is this the pace that you're kind of stuck at? And they say, yeah. So I say, now run faster, right? And they actually start running faster. But in their mind, they have this, you know, psychological limitation that I can only run this fast because they're afraid to actually push themselves. And so you can use, you know, positive talk to literally run faster. You can use positive talk to run slower. And again, so that gets back to talking your way, thinking your way through the race rather than running your way through the race. And again, just knowing these different areas of where things can be challenging. So to me, again, it's the middle it's, you know, that hill um, coming down from Wellesley and then running over the 128. Um, and then, you know, when you get into uh, Kenmore Square, again, you think, well, the race is over. Well, you're now running under the Comav Bridge and you're coming up. And again, it's not much, but it's still a little bit of, of an incline. And so it's like, even though the race is almost done, you got to respect the course. Like when you try to do things that, oh, well, it's almost done. It's like, even when you're running um, over um, the Mass Pike uh, that, you know, as you're coming into Kenmore Square, that again is a pretty steep little bridge. 25 miles in is not easy, right? And so again, it's just knowing how to pace yourself um, in what I would consider like those tougher areas. That's a great reminder and great advice. We've talked about that a lot on our podcast, but it's also really nice to hear specifics from you as also a seasoned Boston marathoner. And uh, it goes back to your uh, original comment about visualizing and making a race plan. So now folks who are running Boston can visualize after hearing the screams in the Wellesley tunnel, not getting too excited and using that to push your way down the hill, but rather thinking, I'm going to control my pace right now because I could be really excited, but I'm going to listen to what Dr. Kimball said and, and relax and not go too fast. So that's a great tip. And also just another way to think about the race and make a plan so that it's not creating a lot of anxiety in advance. Um, so with respect to Boston also, I know that this year in particular, some people may be having a little bit more uh, stress about the new logistics. Uh, what are you telling um, your folks up there about that and how to manage that? 
Um, you know, it, it's, uh, I think when it comes to all the different, you know, restrictions and changes and things like that, um, people like to do what they're comfortable with and what they know. So like even, you know, the year after the bombing, right? So the, in 2014, like the year after it, everything changed, right? It's like, you know, you could no longer like bring whatever on the bus or, you know, like all of these things change. And, you know, you know, runners are creatures of habit. Like you like to do things a certain way. Well, well, the last time I ran Boston, you did it this way. Well, you're not, you know, or, you know, it's like, oh, but, you know, my friends were able, used to be able, well, they can't, right? And so what that kind of just falls into like what you were saying earlier was, what's controllable and what's not controllable. And am I focusing my efforts, my mental efforts on something I can't change no matter how hard I think about it, right? Or am I putting my efforts into what I can control and what I can change, which are things like my routine, my mindset, my strategy, all of those, those things. So again, it's focusing on what you need to do on race day within the confines of what the new rules are or, or regulations and limitations um, and not get, you know, so focused on things that you don't have any control over. Because as you were saying, you know, you're never going to eliminate performance anxiety. It's about managing it. And whoever manages it most effectively, they will be the ones that end up having the better day. Again, not necessarily a PR or whatever, but they will have a better day than, you know, the runners who struggle with the controllable versus the uncontrollable factors. Very well said. And I think that is um, great kind of parting advice for us to our runners as we start to get ready to head up to Boston. And really, like um, we said, the only thing left to do is to prepare mentally. We're all physically ready. Anything we do this week isn't going to help us, uh, you know, have a better race except for the kind of the mental preparation. And you've given us really great uh, framework for that. And um, again, we encourage runners uh, to check out your book, Grateful Running Mental Training for the Long Distance Runner, second edition now. Sounds yes, like updated yeah. second edition. Yeah. And again, we'll link to that um, in our podcast notes and, and on our social media when we post the podcast episode. But we are really appreciative of all of your very specific Boston guidance and your, you know, your professional guidance on, on mentally dialing in our, our race day strategy. So thank you so much for joining us. And we're excited to come up to Boston in just a few days. Thank you. And last but not least, I'm sure you're probably thinking, well, maybe he'll wish us good luck for the race. And my parting word is as follows. I never wish runners good luck. Because if I say, hey, good luck out there, what I'm really saying is you will only do well if you have luck. Luck is uncontrollable. So my parting words to my runners are, trust what you have done, go out and make it happen. Love that. That's great. We're, we're going to use that, I think, moving forward. So and thank have you a grateful again. Run. Thank, <laughs> yes, a grateful run. Absolutely. Listen to some Grateful Dead music. Get us pumped up. So Dr. Grayson Kimball, thank you again. And hopefully we will get to uh, see you in Boston. All right. Sounds good. Take care. Thank great you. Day. Thank yeah. you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.